Welcome to Word Matters, presented by the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Word Matters is a podcast dedicated to helping Christians understand some of the most confusing and controversial passages of the Bible. And now, join the conversation with your hosts, Trevin Wax and Brandon Smith. Why does the Old Testament condemn mixed claws and shellfish? This is a question we will answer on this episode of Word Matters. I'm Brandon Smith, brand manager for the HCSB, and I'm here with my co-host, Trevin Wax, managing editor of the Gospel Project. Hey, Trevin. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Now, today, Trevin and I are looking at some Old Testament laws that continually confuse Christians and that are even used as ammunition against Christianity in general and Christian morality in particular. Yeah, so what makes this text difficult, uh, it's it's not simply a text, it's an entire way of reading the Bible. Um when you consider the legalization of same-sex marriage, uh, all of the hubbub surrounding that, uh, we've seen some non-Christians and Christians alike say things like, well, you believe homosexual practice is wrong, but you shave your beard, you know, you still eat shellfish. You're, to, be, you know. to be fair, Trevin, you don't shave your beard. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. If I if I could grow a beard to shave, I I would, but... Uh, you know, but so people will say, you know, you don't you don't follow everything in the Bible. You're not being consistent with what the Bible teaches. So so here's the basic idea or complaint that gets thrown out there. And I mean, you see this in Facebook comment threads and mm-hmm. blog comments and online and in conversation. Uh, people will say, well, you're just picking and choosing what biblical commands you want to obey. It just and you're just picking and choosing based on whatever prejudices you have. Mm-hmm. So that's the argument against Christians. And to deal with that, you've got to realize that this is not just a cultural issue. This is a biblical theological issue. It, it raises a number of questions, not about just one particular text, but about the whole relationship between the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, law and gospel, and how we should live today. Yeah, and that's that's exactly why we're talking about it here, try to see if we can provide at least a little bit of clarity on that. Uh, so to make sure that our listeners are up to speed, uh, let's read a few of these passages. There's tons of them. Let's just read two and kind of dive into this. Uh, so I'll read Leviticus 11, verses 9 through 12 in the HCSB. This is what you may eat from all that is in the water. You may eat everything in the water that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or streams, but these are to be detestable to you. Everything in the seas or streams does not that does not have fins and scales among all the swarming things and other living creatures in the water. They are to remain detestable to you. You must not eat any of their meat, and you must detest their carcasses. Everything in the water that does not have fins and scales will be detestable to you. Okay, and another good example would come from Leviticus 19.19. You are to keep my statutes. You must not crossbreed two different kinds of your livestock, sow your fields with two kinds of seed, or put on a garment made of two kinds of material. Yeah, so like I said, there's there's plenty of other texts like this, but this at least gives us a taste of some of what, what they are. Uh, so, Trevor, what makes this text difficult? Well, text like this, I should say. I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, this raises a lot of questions about how how do we as Christians relate to Old Testament laws? And the answer you give to that has implications far beyond just hermeneutics, you know, how you interpret the Bible. I mean, it really does have implications for our apologetic, our defense of the Christian faith in the world around us. So uh, one thing we should note from the get-go, though, is that it's not sinful <laughs> For Christians to wear shirts that are 94% cotton, 6% nylon or whatever, or eat crab uh, or have a garden with potatoes and cilantro right next to each other. I mean, we know because of the New Testament that there is more to that than this. And that, that is good news because it could get really awkward in here if we had to change shirts, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, it would. Uh, so let's look at some of the, the, the various exegetical options for interpreting this text. 
And the real question we're trying to ask is just how do we view these texts? What do we do with them? Okay, so unlike many of our other episodes that we've done, there really isn't an argument about whether or not Christians are commanded to follow some of these ceremonial, some of these dietary rules in the Old Testament. Uh, it, it's really the the interpretive uh, options are really more about Jesus and how his teaching, how the New Testament's teaching relates to the moral aspects of the law. So one interpretation worth mentioning, uh, this is something you might call the progressive ethic uh, or the revisionist ethic, uh, depending on your perspective, I guess. Uh, <laughs> some some Christians that affirm homosexuality as a, as a legitimate moral option for Christians today will go this route. They'll say, look, Jesus and the New Testament are not forbidding the kind of homosexual uh, behavior that we know of today. They'll say that because the old covenant is now obsolete, according to Hebrews, uh, or that the old covenant, because it's a yoke of slavery, according to Paul, uh, because of that, Christians should not consider any of the Old Testament law as restrictive for us today. So they'll say Christians are being inconsistent when they abandon dietary laws, but continue to say that homosexuality for example, is a sin. So uh, this view finds favor in our culture today because these these issues are on a lot of people's minds. Yeah, yeah, we're starting. This is nothing new, but we're definitely starting to see it, you know, a lot yes. more. Uh, but it is it is sort of an outlier in Christian history. I think most Christians throughout history would more or less agree that the law is a lot more complicated than that. Like, hey, let's just do away with everything and, and everything's okay. Uh, and we'd all agree that there are certain aspects of the law that we are no longer required to follow. We'd all agree with that, right? Uh, but it doesn't mean that it's totally a black and white issue. So um, another view um, is something that you can find in reform circles, maybe even reform-leaning type circles. Uh, they tend to divide the law into civil, ceremonial, and moral categories. So will kind of break it up a little bit. Tim Keller uh, actually wrote an accessible and really helpful article on the Gospel Coalition. We talked about that before the show, about how good that was. So that's something you should definitely go look up. Um, so, so some of the examples of the ways that they would parse this is to say that some commandments were for the people of Israel— um, as they were meant to be set apart from other pagan nations around them. So pagan nations did these things. You're not supposed to do them because you're God's people and you're supposed to look different. Uh, so oftentimes God would tell them not to eat certain types of meat or wear certain clothes uh, because it was a custom of maybe another nation. Uh, but obviously cultural customs change. And so some of these things aren't even realities in our world today. That kind of complicates it a little bit. Um, and other examples would be rules of what types of sacrifice and cleanliness are acceptable uh, as worship or as forgiveness of sin. Um, and and they would all say that these have been fulfilled by Christ's sacrifice, no longer applying to us today. Uh, but then there are the moral laws, and that and that's where you know where we really start uh, getting into some issues. Um, so they would say there's a moral law, basically the Ten Commandments in particular, uh, still apply to us today. Uh, but they're more about obedience and proof of, proof of salvation, uh, not not trying to say that we're earning favor with God. And so the sins haven't changed, uh, but the penalties have. So we're still commanded to uphold the moral law. The Ten Commandments still matter. Uh, but only with the understanding that Jesus has, has upheld the law for us. Uh, so we may no longer stone someone to death, for example, for committing one of these sins, but we might exhort them to repent or enact church discipline, for example. Yes, there's also an interpretation that um, finds more favor, I've noticed, among those who would not consider themselves uh, Reformed-leaning. Uh, they would say, if if your view is that you affirm uh, homosexuality, uh, it they would say that's wrongheaded, but they would actually agree with the, the, the interpretation that the Reformed view is just too complicated. So they would just say we are not bound by the law in any way, shape, or form. There's there's no breakdown about civil, ceremonial, like that's kind of just 
those are those might be nice helpful categories, but because they don't come from the Bible themselves, that there there's just no distinction between what parts of the law are and aren't valid. Right. So this group would say that in Galatians, for example, um, Paul does not distinguish between different forms of the law. He just says the law is abolished. Christ removed all the obligation underneath it. Now, we have to make sure, though, that it, that point of view is not confused with antinomianism. That's the a, a big theological word. Basically, that's the view that the moral law has no use, no obligation for Christians at all. Uh, the, the point of this perspective, though, is just to say Christians are to live morally with God's character as the example, with the Holy Spirit as the one who's enabling us. And so it's cut and dry. Uh, the law is gone. The Old Testament law is gone. Christ has come. And some of them may disagree on how Israel f- still fits into the broader scope of biblical history, but you know, I mean, we could get into a whole episode yeah. <laughs> on different views of Israel's future all in itself. Maybe, maybe we'll save that for, for one yeah. of the difficult texts. Yeah, you, you have fun with that. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about the, the strengths and weaknesses and maybe see if we can bring some clarity here. So I think up front, we can both affirm, and along with virtually all Christians throughout history, that the first view, the homosexuality is no longer condemned by Scripture. That's not a valid option. Uh, regardless of your thoughts on how the law is broken down, uh, the New Testament, all those kind of things, um, post-Christ sacrifice for sins and the enactment of the New Covenant, would still say that it's c- consistent across the board. Homosexuality is a sin. Um, it's lumped in, in, in throughout Scripture with all kinds of other sins, adultery, drunkenness, gossip, etc. It's all things that have been carried throughout Scripture. That's right. And I mean, I, it, it, it's, it's funny to me to see when people talk about uh, Christian sexual ethics, and they want to talk about just a few select verses talking about homosexuality that mm-hmm. we need to reinterpret in order to be in favor with the culture today. I, I mean, that makes it that almost actually makes the Bible seem like it's this rule book that has these just sort of random, unrelated laws about sexual sin. And you can't simply turn to the Bible as a law book because what you see in the storyline of Scripture is this beautiful picture of the place for sexuality. You know, the place for sexuality is within the covenant of marriage between a male and a female. You have to take in the whole of Scripture to see that that the positive picture of sexuality within the proper bounds, that's what's at stake in these prohibitions against mm-hmm. sexual sin, right? So that's why, no surprise, later Jews, early Christians were unanimous in their conclusion that any sexual behavior outside the marriage covenant between a man and a woman was sinful. Right. I think that's a good clarification, too, because like we said, that is a question people are talking about and asking all the time right now, especially when it comes to the Old Testament, kind of cherry picking what helps their argument instead of looking at the biblical uh, the meta narrative of Scripture. I think this discussion also kind of tends to make a, too much of a clear break between Old and New, te- new Covenants, uh, especially when it comes to morality and salvation. So it's kind of like, here's this one thing, here's this other thing, and it doesn't uh, figure out a way to, to see how they work together. Uh, you know, obviously Christ enacted a new covenant that's built entirely on grace through faith. We're, we're Protestants, we're Baptists, we're going to affirm that, uh, you know, affirm that totally. Uh, but I also don't buy into the idea that the old covenant was just strictly about works-based salvation, that it was just do this, do this, do this, and become saved. Um, I think you can look at it uh, in Romans 4, for example, where Paul says that Abraham's faith, not his works, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So there's more to it than just salvation by works. However you want to parse it out in the end, there's more to it than that. Uh, so I, I kind of tend to lean toward uh, something Michael Horton said, and his explanation uh, fits into the reform view, obviously, with Michael Horton. Uh, but he has a good quote here. He says, quote, the law is good, but we are not. The law commands, but cannot give. It tells what must be done, but helps us get it done, not simply by the law's, uh, simply not in the law's job description. It condemns us for violation, but cannot exercise clemency for violators. 
I didn't say the new covenant dispenses with imperatives, laws, or commands, but merely that it is not based on them. God has done in Christ what the law could not do in us. In Christ, God not only finds the perfect substitute for our sins, but the fulfiller of all righteousness on our behalf. We are not only forgiven, but are accounted as those who have perfectly fulfilled God's moral will and thought, word, and deed. I think that's a really good quote to kind of sum it up. Uh, so in other words, I get to keep my 94% cotton shirt, but the moral structures set forth by the Ten Commandments haven't changed. I'm so glad you don't have to go shopping for a new wardrobe. <laughs> pre- yeah. yeah. Or me neither. <laughs> so so uh, wrapping this up then, how do we preach? How do we teach? How do we share this message? Um, I, I would just say the overarching point here is that we all need uh, salvation uh, through faith in Christ. That That is our greatest need. We live under the grace and forgiveness of Christ. Nothing we can ever do can earn salvation saved by sheer grace. Yeah, and I think I think people would probably say that as cliche or obvious, right? You know, we always say that we're saved by faith. We know we're saved by faith. We know we can't work for our salvation. But frankly, you know, at times we all live our lives as though we need to work for our forgiveness in Christ. And so uh, whether we do that by treating spiritual disciplines as some sort of penance or by beating ourselves up every time we sin as though God won't forgive us, um, we still need to be reminded of this all the time, that God forgives us every single time, and there is no better news to preach to ourselves or anybody else. Amen. So that wraps up uh, this episode of Word Matters. Trevin, thank you so much for joining me as always, and thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Word Matters is presented by the Holman Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is faithful to the original languages but clear for today's readers. Find out more at hcsb.org.